You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Samin Rushdie. Hello, could I please speak with Samin Rushdie? Hello, Paul, it's Samin. Samin, I'm so happy to, to speak with you. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, my pleasure. I am as well. Tell me, what, what am I interrupting for the moment, apart from you waiting for my phone call? What are you up to? Um, you're interrupting my, um, my little... We have a new Whippet puppy. And um, she's getting ready to go out. So she's uh, eating her meal. And when we finish talking, I shall take her into the field. And and where, where do you go when you go into the fields? Well, we live, very, we live in Highgate. So we've got the woods very close to us. And in the middle of the woods, there's a field. And, and you know, whippets love to run. They're such fast dogs. Have you always had dogs? We've always had dogs. When we were children, we had dogs. Our first dog was, um, she came with a very grand German name. She was called Simki von der Heisen. <laughs> and this was in Bombay. And, 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 and um, why, why would you have given a German name to, to a dog in Bombay? No, no, we didn't. She must have come from a German breeder that must be still left in India at that time when we were very young. There was still quite a lot of Europeans that hadn't yet left. Right. Um, well, because it, well, when we were young, it was soon after the partition and soon after the British left. I mean, certainly when we went to school, that was Bombay particularly, was still very cosmopolitan. There was a lot of people who were still winding up whatever they'd been in India for. I think there was a while after that that most people seemed to have gone. Do you, do you think that when when you mention the word cosmopolitan, do you do you think that in some way uh, everything that cosmopolitan means has something to do with your desire to reissue your your beautiful book Indian Cookery? You know, even it, it, it's funny, but in a way that when I first did the book, it was. Um, I, I was much younger and I was cross at the perceptions of Indian food as they were. And I was very keen for, it was kind of a main motivation of mine that to um, put on the map uh, what I thought of as authentic food. And um, but, but it was just very personal to me. It, I wasn't trying to, to do a map of, of, the, of um, Indian food nationally because i mean india's culinary zones um are as many as the languages and the cultures of the people that inhabit india you know diversity is such a hallmark of that subcontinent and food is one expression of that um so i was just doing it in a very small way to because nothing that i ate in restaurants at the time reflected anything that I would be proud of or I would even recognize. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense, but I'm I'm wondering. I I feel like you're building up towards something, which is if I'm if if I'm right in in hearing you as carefully as I possibly can, that when you wrote the book at first, you had no intention to to speak about what it might mean to be cosmopolitan or what it might mean for a food to be more than just where it is cooked. Uh, but in a way part of humanity. And that with the passage of years, Indian cookery was written some three decades ago. It has taken, it has taken on perhaps, and perhaps I'm wrong, and do correct me if I am, but it has taken on a new meaning, or the meaning of the book perhaps has changed because of the passage of time and perhaps also because of the strange and worrisome predicament we find ourselves in now? It could be, but also at the time when I... Um, because uh, a book is meaningful to the people that read it and it changes its meaning for the time in which it's approached. But we were a very typical Bombay kind of family and so we enjoyed a kind of eclectic selection of foods from my mother's kitchen. Um, my parents had a kind of Kashmiri, Delhi, North Indian background. And then my, in my grandmother's home that we visited in Aligarh, which was the university town, every year with all our cousins and all our aunts, we would congregate over, over the winter. Um, she, had a very, she had a clay log burning stove, a small kitchen where, where she would squat um, and uh, and the food was at that level, cooked low, and so I remember that. So our home food, and then Bombay, because it had so many, what we used to call foreigners at the time, it, had, it was influenced by a kind of Anglo-Indian cuisine, which also made its way onto our table. So it was very eclectic, the food that we grew up eating, which um, I tried to present when I forward my, my personal recipes. I'm I'm wondering if it if it would at all be correct, Samin, to say that you wrote this book for your mother. Um, no, I don't think I wrote this book for my mother. I um, maybe in, looking back at it, I, I certainly knew that I wanted her to be pleased with it and to feel that her. Um, I, I was thrilled that she liked that her food was in it, um, and I refer, and I referred to both my mother and my father to ask them certain things about their memories and what their favorite foods were, and to remind me of how certain things were cooked originally. So, so yes, I was very pleased that it was first published in their lifetime, and that they were so pleased. Describe to me um, a typical meal in the Rushdi family. Okay, so um, a typical meal. Maybe there, maybe a, maybe there is no typical meal, but this, there is no typical meal. Except there is a kind of balance in an Indian meal. So tell me, tell me, I'm always, I'm curious. So there will always be a staple. What we call a staple will either be a rice or some kind of a roti, some kind of bread. And there's an etiquette within different regions about which is presented first. So in our house, the rice dishes would be presented first. And there would be a balance. So there would have to be a dal dish, like lentils. There would be fish. There 
might be either a lamb or a chicken and a couple of vegetables. Now, this is a very grand meal. It may not, and, and um, it, it seems like a grand meal in today's um, parlance when we talk about it, that you've got six dishes on the table for an ordinary family meal, but things were cooked fresh and they were not necessarily cooked in large quantities, but things were cooked fresh. And, um, and actually it reminds me of that cookbook. Um, what is that cookbook? Alice, what did she call it? Murder in the Kitchen. She wrote about and certain of um, Alice B. Cookless. Was she a cook? Right, person? yes, 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 yes. Um, and she had to cook, that... kill things to cook them. And I remember when we, my children were very young. I'm, di- I'm digressing from your original question. But, I, I, but I, love, I love digression. I always say that digression, as Lauren Stone said, is the sunshine of narrative. So go right ahead. So we, we went to Dhaka in Bangladesh to um, their to their father's family. And um, well, what they'd never seen as children growing up in the West, you know, they saw chicken coming from the butchers or, or in a packet that already looked like chicken breast or looked like chicken wings. And suddenly the, the man who came to the house brought a basket of live hens to sell. And uh, my children were playing with them like they, were, they had come they, they were playing with them, they were chasing them and running with them, and they didn't realize that this was going to be lunch. And I was reminded of that by Alice took of murder in the kitchen, because we haven't um, grown up in our kitchen as well in Bombay, it was more urban. But yes, things were uh, often, uh, the chicken would arrive live, and the cook would, would slaughter it before... Um, plucking its feathers and then cooking it for lunch. I will have um, to I will have to read Murder in the Kitchen. I mean I remember the book and I remember how important it was in, in the Gertrude Stein circle. But it sounds exactly. it, it sounds absolutely delicious. You know, I came upon yeah, and, but also horrendous. You know, yeah. when you think how divorced we are now, I mean you begin to understand why people turn vegetarian because the notion of um, of having to kill a live calf and know where to do it best are things we don't anymore know how to do, thank goodness. I mean, I say, I would I would probably turn vegetarian if I had to kill the animal, I think. You know, it, it, I, I, I came across a, a quotation that I, I very much love of M. F. K. Fisher, uh, she writes in the, an alphabet for gourmet. She says, sharing food with another human being is an intimate act that should not be indulged lightly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering how that resonates for you, also given what you, what you said about a meal in the Rushdie family. have to enjoy it for it to, for the evening to 
flow. Well, you know, um, uh, one of the one of the very very great writers on on food, uh, perhaps one of the earliest we know of, is Bria Savarin, who said that taste as nature has endowed us with it is still that one of our great senses which give us the greatest joy because it can mingle with all other pleasures and even console us for their absence. And I, I, I've, I've always found that, that wonderful. And you know, I, I think I told you, Samin, when we, when we briefly met that there's this wonderful story that I so much have loved of a French literary critic named Jean, uh, Jean-Pierre Richard, who had as his students two of the very great, um, future uh, critics, uh, much in the line of, of the Michelin, Go et Mio, who had studied literature and loved the passages in literature where writers, especially Flaubert, mentioned food. And one day they were asked on a television show, what did they love most about a particular meal? And they turned to each other and told themselves that they would tell this critic. And they said that what they loved the most was the person with whom they ate. And they had learned that by being in a literary class in a class on literature in the Sorbonne, where they discovered that in one essay by the writer, by the teacher who was teaching them about Flaubert, he had written that one eats a lot in the novels of Flaubert. And I wonder if, if to, to some extent that isn't true for you, that it's, it's uh, the conviviality, the shared experience of a delicious meal, and perhaps talking about that meal as well. I have to, I mean, that has to take me as completely as a tangent to another thought. Please. While what you say is true, is because my children taste it, that I think that Indian food particularly has, and I talk, I touch about, touch on this to my, in my book 30 years ago, and I'm not sure that much has changed of how racist attitudes towards this food affect even the youngest children who become aware I'm reminded of my children through a joke about fiery food at school or bullying or snide comments about the food they eat at home. And they would refuse to take anything other than a cheese sandwich in their school meals. Somehow, the fact that we talk about how Indian restaurants, people expect to pay less, but making making the food cheap um, economically somehow makes it inferior and this also impacts on cultural perceptions of those people whose food it is and on their languages too. Tell me more. And on their language too, because such racist attitudes are often expressed through food under the pretense of health and hygiene. But like my elder daughter, we were very keen to bring her up bilingually and so she grew up speaking Urdu and Bengali, and when she went to a nursery, because I worked and she needed to go to a nursery, I did explain to them that, because they have pictures on the wall, as you do with young children, and there were pictures of animals and all of this, and I said, she knows all this, but she knows it in a different language. And I never felt that that was recognized 
in the way it would have been if she had been a French-speaking child. They would have um, valued her second language or her first language. I think that things have happened. You know, it used to be called, in the old days when we were young, other food used to be called foreign food. Right. And somehow in the 50s, it was necessary to differentiate ethnic food, that is food not associated with whites, and they have ethnic food aisles in supermarkets. French food, French cuisine and Japanese cuisine isn't found there. And they are both foreign, but prestigious. And in the case of Japanese, you can say class triumphs even over race. But there is a kind of feeling, which has also been my struggle in writing about a food that I adore and I think is a highly evolved and nuanced cuisine. And I wanted to put that across so people would um, feel that at the heart of that book is the food that I've been close to all my life. And that, and, it, is, uh, and that it is, in a way, um, not dissimilar from a very evolved language. Exactly. Oh, language is, you know. And certainly Urdu, which is our mother tongue, is a highly evolved language. And it's a large language. When you talk about English, it's also a very large language. Um, Anyway, so that's just my rant. No. Uh, but I don't know if it's changed that much in the 30 years. I'm sad to say, I think there is more of an understanding of it. People, uh, more people eat it, and there is some improvement in the quality of it in certain places. But I, I'm not sure that those attitudes are completely gone. It's, it's quite extraordinary to see... Um, how many extraordinary writers and critics have been in love and influenced by your books, I mean, Indian cookery, whether it's Nigella Lawson or Madhua Jaffrey or Camilla Shamsi, they all swear by your book. And I'm, I'm, won- I'm wondering, I'm wondering what effect that has had uh, on you when you think about this little book you put together of your mother's recipes, of course expanding on it, but in a way recollecting, remembering those meals you had shared whilst growing up? Well, it's always a pleasure when people like what you've done. That's um, true. So, that, yeah. that is true. <laughs> I, I, I identify with that. Yeah. Um, And filled with stories. I mean, it, it is as if you, in one chapter, you take the defense of the very humble potato. <laughs> I, I don't remember where that comes, but yes. Yes, you, you, you say that potatoes have been in some way demeaned and that they are, they are great food. Yeah, I think they are great food and we all love them and somehow we're meant to feel guilty for loving them. 
you were mentioning you were mentioning earlier during your studies what what did you study well i've i've done different things in my life i've chopped and changed such a lot i trained to be a lawyer and um, when my family moved to pakistan i was working with a senior human rights lawyer which was very challenging at the time um, because at that time there was very few women in the lower courts, which is where you had to start, and it was um, very full of, of men um, with um, really nowhere to, to, like no common room where you could go and be comfortable as a woman because Pakistan, was, well, it's even, it's become an even more difficult place for women now than when I talk about you. Really? Things would have progressed, but they seem to have gone backwards. Um, because certainly... Uh, I, I do know of some people who are now struggling there, women who are trying to work on other women's issues, and they're having a really, really hard time. Um, at the moment, I'm um, just taken back to... I'm, I'm reading an Urdu short story writer called Sadat Hassan Manto. I think he was a great story, short story writer, and of course he wrote in our mother tongue originally. And... Um, I, I believe that the translations are, are not very good, but unfortunately, although we are completely fluent in spoken Urdu, my siblings and I are not really proficient in the written text beyond the high school level. But my father used to read them to, to me in the original. And he writes some heart-wrenching stories from the darker side of... Um, of our society, and he wrote a lot during partition about that experience. When um, when did when did he write? He wrote around that before between after partition and before partition. So that's forty seven. I mean, he died very young. He died at, when he was in his fifties, I think. Because I, I must say that uh, that. Um, he is someone whose work I I don't know, but I I did look him up, and I, uh -huh. I and I would love you to read something of his because I know he's on your mind, and I came across this one quotation as you as you know I am a little bit of a quotomaniac, but there 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 is this one quotation actually I'll read two and then maybe ask you to read something yourself. He says, uh -huh. "Some people kiss." as if they were eating watermelon. And I, I just love that. And then, yeah. this, other, then this, other, this other quotation where he, he writes, her pores were like those of an orange, its skin filled with juice. What if you applied the slightest pressure? It would squirt pressure into your eyes. She was just that fresh. What story is that from? I'm not sure, but I had I had okay. no idea who Sadat Hassan Manto was when you when uh -huh. you mentioned him, and I thought, oh, okay. my goodness, I have to know something. What story do you like of his? Might you might you read something? There's one that made me laugh in the in its irony, although it's quite harsh. It's around um, it's um, about partition. 
is probably the best story around partition. If I can just read you a little bit, but in pieces, so it makes sense. Please, please, please do, please do. It will be it's a it will be a real gift. So the name is Soba Dixing, and it starts. It says, a couple of years after the partition of the country, it occurred to the respective governments of India and Pakistan that inmates of lunatic asylums, like prisoners, should also be exchanged. Muslim lunatics in India should be transferred to Pakistan, and Hindu and Sikh lunatics in Pakistani asylums should be sent to India. Whether this was a reasonable or an unreasonable idea, it is difficult to say. One thing is clear. It took many conferences of important officials on both sides to come to this decision. Then, a bit further on it says, not all inmates were mad. Some were perfectly normal, except that they were murderers. To spare them the hang hangman's noose, their families had managed to get them committed after bribing officials down the line. They probably had a vague idea why India was being divided and what Pakistan was. As for the present situation, they were equally clueless. And then they ask, as to where Pakistan was located, the inmates knew nothing. That was why both the mad and the partially mad were unable to decide whether they are now in India or in Pakistan. If they were in India, where on earth is Pakistan? And if they were in Pakistan, what happened only until the other day? This was India. One inmate got so badly caught up in this whole India-Pakistan, Pakistan-India rigmarole, that while one day sweeping the floor, he dropped everything, climbed up the nearest tree, and declared, I wish to live neither in India nor in Pakistan. I wish to live in this tree. Um, shall I go on or shall we... I think, it, I think that's wonderful. Uh, tell me... You know, it's just such a notion. Yes, tell me, tell me what you love about it. Tell me what you love about it. Well, I just think that if we grew up with our parents thinking that the notion of partition was mad, that it was total madness. And here you are in a lunatic asylum where, where it is mad and people just cannot make sense of how one people could have ended up as two nations. Um, how, so what happened to the literature? So suddenly you have all this. Can Pakistan's literature be separated from India's? What, what, what will be the dividing line? Would all that was written in undivided India be partitioned too? Um, and it's it just become a little bit of a nonsense about who owns Sadat San Manto at first because he was several times um, uh, taken to court for, uh, for obscenities on, on obscene charges and on different things. And so Neither country, India did not wish to recognize him at first um, and didn't, it really wasn't on any Indian literature syllabuses in school. Pakistan didn't want to recognize him until very recently that suddenly he's um, been given one of the highest honors. But, and it's because of the language he wrote in. So now he wrote in the language of Urdu, which um, is just, just to explain that at a very North Indian level, the common language of undivided North India was effortlessly understood on both sides. But in uh, in Pakistan, it was written, in, in, Muslims wrote it in an Urdu-Persian script, and the Hindus would have written a similar language in the Devnagri script. So they become now two languages, and people, there's been such an impact on the language, and in order to separate 
themselves on the basis of religion. I mean, it just it incenses me. And it's the same with food. You know, you say, what's the link? Language, food, clothes. All of these things make for a culture. And suddenly you've, you've got a political act created by the British wanting to leave in a rush that divides the nation suddenly on, on grounds of religion. But when you speak about when you speak about partition, and you speak about borders in that way, um, I I also of course begin to think that uh, rereading for you Sadat Hassan Manto in this particular moment in our world history is particularly poignant. Absolutely, what makes a nation? You know, um, globally, I think religion have so much to answer for. Um, if you think about if you think about what's happened in the world, it's um, the biggest irony to my mind is what happened very recently in Myanmar with the Rohingya. You know, the Buddhists, so known for being peaceful, um, are capable of ethnic cleansing. The whole of the Middle East is blowing up with with, with Sunni and Shia. Well, they used to be. Um, and, and the country I live and the country I live in now is um, thinking of putting up a wall. Yes, exactly. So, and and they're not, and no one has yet understood through all the history that we've had that walls, religions, bombs do not sort it out. Partition, it does not sort it out. The plurality will not go away. You know, uh, that's such a beautiful line, the plurality will not go away. I, I often think of this wonderful line in, in Les Pensées of Pascal, where it, the, the question is simply, mais pourquoi me tuez-vous donc? But why do you kill me? And the answer is, mais n'habitez-vous pas de l'autre côté de la, de la rivière? But don't you live on the other side of the bank? As if, yes. as if, as you know, it's so short and so much to the point and uh, yes. so disheartening. And in a way, I, I, I read Indian cookery as a celebration of no borders, as a celebration of, you know, food is one language and the more languages we know, the better we know how to express our love. I'm wondering... I'm wondering, um, um, Samin, you have a, what one might call a, a very famous brother. And I'm, I'm wondering how good of a cook Salman Rushdie <laughs> is. Or how, or, or how good of a cook, or how good of a cook he thinks he is. There's not much Salman can not do. But I don't think so. even Salman would call himself a cook, and it's something he retired from, I think, several decades ago. I don't think he even um, tried. So I can't comment on... I, I'm sure if he put his mind to it, he could, because I've yet to know him not put his mind to something and achieve it. But um, I, I don't think that he's, um, he's a cook. He much prefers to eat and sit in company and laugh and talk and... Um, has he, has he cooked for you, though? No, not since, not in this time. I mean, he did, when I said to him, would he see if my recipes worked by trying them, because he would know if they worked, because we had the same food growing up. 
And I think that he helped me out a bit at that time. But then, as you know, satanic verses took over and the two came up pretty close to each other. Um, and um, he was not in a position to do that much more cooking. He told me that, that last Christmas um, you abandoned the usual turkey <laughs> And and he yes, told me he told me that he he wanted you to tell that story because he loves it. Well, last Christmas Zafar, Salman's eldest son, was yes. going to be in Chatna, I think, and Zafar is the one we call a Christmas fundamentalist because he absolutely wants Christmas to be as it was when he was a child. He wants the turkey and he wants a very traditional English Christmas. And since and Salman's youngest son, Milan, is much more open to just having good food, whatever the food is. So although we were really sorry that Zuffer and his wife Natalie weren't going to be with us last Christmas, because it's many years now we do Christmas together, yes. that, um, that we decided that we would just cook a lavish Indian meal. So we, I did try to make it special, and there was the food, the table was groaning with food, but... Um, there was no turkey and there was no roast and there was no cranberry sauce or Christmas pudding. <laughs> um, and we all had a great time. My girls were there, Milan was there, Salman was there. Yeah, it was, it was lovely. But, you know, when you were talking about um, earlier, just to switch back to that for a minute, you know, about food, you think that food was a way, even in, in, in this Christmas that we had, was to crossing boundaries and visiting other cultures. And it's a way, such an easy and delicious way to do that. And yet people manage to enjoy different foods while still somehow placing it at different points on the scale of ultimate values. There seems to be a disconnect sometimes between prejudice and the eating of the food. People can love a certain food. I mean, take, take the whole thing that's happening in your country at the moment with Mexico. I mean, people are passionately fond of Mexican food. But some of those same people, not all, some, will put up that wall. I know it's it's um, it feels like we we are willing to ingest certain things, but we're not willing, and, not, and we're yeah. not willing to accept certain things and certain people. You know, your 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 brother, I think, got two Booker prizes, and recently Michael Ondaatje got a what they call a golden booker prize yeah. and there is there is one line in the english patient which i want to read to you because it speaks to me so much in terms of our conversation he says we die containing richness of lovers and tribes tastes we have all swallowed bodies we have plunged into and swum up as if rivers of wisdom characters we have climbed into as if trees fears we have hidden in as in caves i wish all this to be marked on my body when i die i believe in such a cartography to be marked by nature not just to be labeled ourselves on a map like the names of rich men and women on buildings. We are communal histories, communal books. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about. 
Isn't that extraordinary? I believe in such a cartography. And in a way, Indian cookery is a way of saying, I'm going to save some of the languages from oblivion. Yes, I hope so. I mean, certainly now, things that have changed in that world, you know, things are so global now. Our children, our children are growing up here, and uh, and they can, if if it's such a part of our culture and who we are, it's one way of passing that down to them, because in so many other ways, that they are very Western beings, but the food they eat as children will remain with them and make that link. With, um, with, their, with their roots. Well, they, 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 when they cook, if they cook from Indian cookery, they are in a way bringing you close to them. Yes. Yes. Samin, I, I, I wonder, is there, I, I'm sure this has been asked of you many a times, but why not ask you at least once my in 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 our conversation is there a particular menu uh, a particular recipe that you you love from the book that that maybe you might even want to explain a little bit or read out and explain so that once people have heard us they might just start cooking all right paul you mentioned potatoes I did, I did, I did. I love that, I love that chapter on potatoes. Okay. Choose a potato dish because it's so simple that anyone can um, approach it without fear. Um, So what I say in the, in the, at the top of the recipe is that no selection of potato dishes would be complete that did not include at least one version of the recipe alu zero. In English that would be sauteed potatoes with cumin seeds. I said, I found it hard to resist the temptation to tell you several ways of cooking Alizira and must admit to feeling a degree of frustration at having to choose between several favorites. I like to use a wok for this dish because it gives me the freedom to stir fry comfortably without the little pieces of potato continually falling out of the pan. So all you need are potatoes, whole dried red chilies, half a teaspoon of turmeric, and some cumin seeds and fresh coriander leaves for garnish. So you simply boil the potatoes in their skins, new potatoes, so they're less than half done, set them aside to cool. When completely cool, dice them up into small cubes, and using only a little oil in your wok, fry the potatoes over high heat so they're evenly cooked, and then when they're nearly done, break up the red chilies, and as they're getting crisp, just Toss in the turmeric, salt, cumin seeds just before serving, garnish with fresh coriander. Now, there can't be anything simpler than that, and it takes minutes. Um, so maybe you'd like to try it, Paul. I, I think I, I, I may very well do that. Um, I'm not sure that if I, I manage to do it, I'll invite you over for, <laughs> for, for dinner, but I hope someday 
to taste your food cooked by you, I must say it it really would it appeal. Would be my pleasure. It really would appeal it would to be my me. Pleasure. And and I hope that that our listeners who are eavesdropping will will go out and get Indian cookery. It's a, a beautiful book, um, and it has a kind of an old fashioned quality to it. Um, I think that people will will really enjoy reading it. It has a a, a wonderful brotherly introduction by Salman Rushdie. And Samin, it's been it's been a real pleasure to talk to you not only about cooking and how one shouldn't be afraid of cooking Indian food, which always seems so daunting and difficult. You seem to make it uh, both appealing and simple enough for people to to try. But also, it it just um, is a very interesting book because it also speaks about our modern predicament and the way in which maybe we should come together a little bit more. So did I, and thank you for taking this old-fashioned phone call, and I'm sure our paths will cross again. I hope so, and if you're in London, ring me, and I'll cook you that meal that you want. Please do, please do. (laughs) A big hug to you, and have a very good summer. Thank you, Paul. All best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, and I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there!